0: This bonus series is kindly supported by Soundmark Partners. Soundmark Partners LLC is a women-owned and led private credit firm focused on commercial real estate.
1: I'm on four corporate boards, three public, one private. I think the thing that helps in the board is that a CEO, I sat in that general manager seat. And being a general manager is very much about making trade-offs. One of my former heads of portfolio management, very smart guy who built a very big firm and came to us in his retirement, said, Jane, if a decision is simple, then there's no decision. (laughs) You know, it's all, you know, it's where they're close and either decision could be good or bad. That's the ones that you struggle over. And I think that experience of risk balancing and thinking about the ups and downs and realizing you're not going to get them all right. I was with, I had the opportunity to be with one of the, Top CEOs on Wall Street earlier this week. And he told about 30 or 40 of us directors, it was a director's education thing in general. And we were just talking about how he managed his board. And he said, very interestingly, if I'm not making about 20% wrong decisions, I'm not taking enough risk. And I think that's a very interesting attitude.
0: Using academic life and practical investing is more rare than we think. Both are time and emotionally intensive. In this podcast, one of the co founders of PAMCO, hedge fund expert and former academic Jane Buchan, walks us through her professional achievements to date. We hear about the aspects of academic life that might serve us well in the practical professional domain, such as the openness to new ideas. We talk then about being an outsider and the importance of flexing that to make a difference and bring and elevate outside voices. Instead of imposter syndrome, should we be talking about the imposter's imperative? Let's hear from Jane. I'm Ethan Devitt, and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Jane Buchan, who's CEO of Martlett Asset Management based in Newport Beach, California. She was one of the co-founders of Pacific Alternative Asset Management in 2000, which grew to 32 billion assets under management under her leadership. She's been a chair of the board of Kaya, as well as an assistant professor of finance at the Amos Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and has a number of board roles. Welcome, Jane. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, you have an extensive resume with many chapters of business building, investing, academic work, and a broad selection of board roles. Can you briefly walk us through your path?
1: Walk us through my past. So, I grew up in the West Coast. My parents were professors of medicine. So, I knew nothing about finance. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. And so, I went around one summer and interviewed people in Portland, Oregon, and found out about jobs. And I sort of liked the people who were in business and decided to go into business. Then, when I was at university in the mid 80s, investment banking was very popular. And I knew I didn't want to be an investment banker. It didn't sound like a fun job. But my advisor convinced me that there were other jobs out there in finance, and so introduced me to an asset manager, and that's how I got into asset management. And I loved it because it was about solving problems, not building spreadsheets. And I liked solving problems. My background was more mathematical finance.
0: And I also have a lot of doctors in my family. Your parents are a professor of medicine. What particular discipline within medicine?
1: So my father was a, a neuropathologist and my mother was in family medicine and co-founded the Ethics Center at the medical school. She taught at.
0: So in terms of your path, were there any surprises along that way in within asset management? And maybe how did you maintain that academic interest which you cultivated?
1: Yeah. So actually, as you know, I got into hedge funds incredibly early in the late 80s before most people ever were involved in hedge funds. And the reason I got into hedge funds was personal, it was through track and field. So I was working there in J.P. Morgan Asset Management in New York City, and I had an offer to jump for Nike Coast and train for the Olympic Trials. And I went into my boss, who had been a former Wharton professor, and I explained it. And he said, well, you only get one chance to do this, so we'll give you a leave of absence to go do that. And he put me with a small consulting firm that gave a lot of business to J.P. Morgan. And I was going to be a fixed income resource there. But since I was more quantitative, I got dragged into meeting all sorts of hedge fund and hedge fund strategies. So my point is, I didn't know anything about hedge fund. I never would have guessed I would have gone down hedge funds that turned out to be my main career, but I got in it through happenstance. And so I'm a very big advocate of once you pick an area such as finance or asset management, but also you can also combine it with personal things and other opportunities. And it takes many twists and turns.
0: It certainly is very varied, Well, I'm going to go back into that sports activities and your history there. So what was your focus in sports and tell us about that Olympic trial experience?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in the great state of Oregon, where it's sort of the home of track and field. I grew up in Portland, not Eugene, Track City, USA. And so almost every, a large percentage of children do track and field. And I did it too. And I discovered through time that I was pretty good at jumping. It was something I really enjoyed. And so- in college, I became a high jumper. I became nationally competitive. And as I said, I competed, went to the NCAA Championships Division One, several times and then decided to go to work because I went to school to be a student, not to be an athlete and turned into a good athlete. And so I was really lucky when I got that call and that offer and I really enjoyed it. And the thing I liked about it is I'm a competitive person and it was great fun to compete. In a different way,
0: and also I don't know much about the high jump, but it is an individual activity. Although you might be on a broader team, and I would imagine also there's a lot of work for one very short spell of performance, which could or could not go your way. What kind of mindset did you develop around that intense training and then the highly competitive competition? Yeah,
1: track and field tends to be an individual sport. I mean, you do some relays, but by and large, are all individual events. But you still operate a lot as a team and you still root for each other and support for each other. And in some ways, I think it's almost more like being an investment professional because you work on your own ideas, but then you bounce them off of other people as opposed to everybody working on one idea together. So that was really, really helpful. And I really enjoyed it. And when I was working and training as well, it was kind of funny because it still training was more important to me. So at two o'clock every day I'd leave to go to practice. And I can remember once walking out in the middle of a call with a very big sell side investment banking firm. We we're talking about doing a, a pension reversion and immunizing the bonds. and I was just like, wave to my boss, I gotta go And he's like, well, the call's not over and I'm like, I gotta go practice is first. And I think that's one of the things that's hard is that I love investment management. I love asset management, but it's a hard thing to do on a part-time basis. And I think the good people in this industry are people who, make it their focus. But what's nice about it is if you make it your focus for 20 or 30 years, you can have a pretty successful career and still have time to do something else afterwards.
0: And let's go back now to that career and to founding PAMCO. Can you speak about the origins of that and your experience in those early days before the success that followed?
1: Yeah. So I was having two jobs, really. I was a tenure track professor at a Tech School, teaching a lot of quantitative finance. And then what happened is I was still doing a lot of outside consulting, you know, given my skill sets, particularly at that day and age, having the nexus with a little bit of programming and how to solve mathematical problems and some of the issues with algorithms and how to solve problems and derivatives pricing. That was what I focused on. And I finally decided that I just couldn't do two things. And I thought long and hard about, you know, whether I should just bury my head in research for a decade or... Should I leave and go to the the real world? And the thing that drove me is my curiosity. I really like working on problems and solving problems. And what became very apparent is that the data are so much better in the real world. You're solving real problems rather than just writing papers. And so I left. And when I left, I joined the firm that I'd been doing some consulting for. And I realized after I joined shortly, they were going through some succession issues. Uh, The principal owner needed to sell his interest for some personal reasons. And As that happened, there was sometimes those things go well and sometimes there's chaos. And this was a situation of chaos, to be quite candid. And so a bunch of us ended up thinking it was just better to leave and not be involved in the chaos. And we had three very large clients who called us up. I asked how they got my phone number and it was in the phone book. I mean, many people probably don't even know what a phone book is, but I was still in the phone book. So they called me at home on Saturday and said, if you form a firm, we'll follow you guys and just keep everybody together. And so I reached out and called everybody and we decided to do that. And that's how PAMCO was found.
0: Any keys to early success there or any setbacks that maybe were were lessons that you, you learned from?
1: Yeah, So it was very emotionally validating when a bunch of clients moved their assets to us. So that was very nice because we'd been the ones, frankly, doing all the work for many years. So that was very nice, recognizing where the true value add was. But what was interesting also is that once we did that, growth didn't really happen for two years. And I think that's very common. People wanted to see how, I mean, you come out of the consulting community in your prior days and people wanted to see how things fit together. And so you get this high and you're 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 doing everything, you're setting up a business, but then it sort of stagnates for a little bit. But then timing just, we got lucky. There's no other way to say it. We got lucky. It was... In 2000, if you remember, that was the tech bubble, the first tech bubble that burst, pets.com and all that. And people were very worried. We had some weak equity markets and people were looking for diversifiers. They didn't want to go just long equity markets. And so we were at the right time in the right place. The other huge advantage we had is that most of our competitors at that point in time focused primarily on high net worth individuals. And what was unusual is we were running ERISA money, pension money in the space. And so I think that also made us very viable because we understood a lot of those fiduciary issues from a different perspective. There are fiduciary issues across the whole area, but it's, you know, we didn't have to deal with tax that the high net worth people did, but we understood Department of Labor regulations.
0: And you didn't really, I think, step in the same as was pothole as some other fund of funds did, because you seem to have a partnership and collaborative approach from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that's important is... We all came out of the firm, the, the original starting people, the same firm. But what was interesting is four founding partners is we all had PhDs. And I think people tend to assume that that made us smarter. And that's not true. I mean, there's been some very great people who've done great research who don't have PhDs. And frankly, there have been some PhDs who have done very good research. But what was interesting is I think the academy is more tolerant. You walk down, think back to your university days, you walk down the hall you sometimes would have people that just couldn't stand each other, even though they might work in the same area. And because of that, I think we were much more open. So we found a lot of really neat under-the-radar managers. Some of them turned out to be very, very big. And we were there very early because I think we were much more willing to trust our own analysis and much more willing to dive in questions. And we understood data and asking questions. And I also think, we were more willing to consider people that didn't look like traditional hedge fund people, because that was the culture that we have been tra- trained in. In other words,
0: fundraising in terms of you know, you spoke like, the initial two years were challenging. You were unique yeah. in having two females, yeah. two males partners. You were a balanced team, diversified from the very beginning. Did that help so, you? Hinder you?
1: So that I've thought a lot about it. People have asked a lot of questions around it, and there definitely were times that being female. Probably helped. But overall, I think by and large, it hurt more. I mean, I can remember instances where you would invest in a manager and then maybe the performance wasn't so great, but there'd be 10 other firms invested there, but somehow you would get tagged with it if it was myself or one of my other female partners who were covering it because they'd be the only woman in the room. So everybody would remember that. So I do think it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that has frustrated me over the years is in hiring, we talk a lot about taking, you know, names off of resumes now, you know, common practice looking at the skill set. I still think when it comes to looking at managers on the first pass, people who don't look like the traditional stereotypic hedge fund manager find it much harder to raise money. And in fact, when I was at PAMCO, we actually provided a research grant to some professors who actually did peer review article. And what they found is that good news is men and women manage money the same. So I know there's been a lot of work by certain people, particularly in the retail context, you know, are women more risk averse or things like that. Once you're professionally trained and you have the same background, people are people. And that just reassures me, we're all the same. But the thing that's different is women have to produce almost 90 basis points a year more, which in hedge fund land is a lot to have the same AUM. So I think there, you know, still are issues. And I know for myself that It was very hard. I was very careful. Our head of marketing pointed this out to me, client service and business development, that it was very, very hard to close business if there were only women representing the firm. And we had so many women in portfolio management that actually almost all of our marketing partners were guys. So talk about role reversal.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor of this series, Sandmark Partners. I sat down with Jenna Gerstenlauer to talk about their private credit strategy. We spoke about the fact that her company is women-owned and that the majority of the executive team were women and whether that was unusual in the industry. So it's pretty unusual in my experience to have a company, especially in finance or real estate, that is managed and run by women. But to be honest, I don't really think about it until I see the surprise or reaction from people when they meet us. As our company has grown, we've created a more diversified team and that we are nearly 50% men and 50% women. And we have a relatively diverse group of people when it comes to socioeconomic and educational backgrounds as well, which I think is really important. Our model was upside down when compared to most real estate debt funds in the market. We actually had to hire men to create diversity in our company. But no matter how you look at it and the data supports it, the more diversified the investment team through gender, ethnic, socioeconomic, and other qualifications, the better the investment performance is and now back to the show and then let's look at that on an industry level then so yes you mentioned that's a very interesting connection i suppose to get the same aum and the ad size performance needed how would you say over the course of your career you've seen things improve or have they in terms of the industry
1: you know there've been some really good efforts made in the industry by certain people and i think by and large people are very well intentioned i think it's pretty rare these days i can remember very early in my career in the 80s when Effectively, I was excused from certain means because the guys all wanted to sit around and tell certain types of jokes and things like that. And that behavior is by and large, I think, gone from the industry. But I still think we're formed by a lot of stereotypes and prejudices. And people have an interview, whether it's from media or watching people on the news channels or other issues, what a hedge fund manager looks like. And I think when you hire a manager, as you know very well, you're making a guess. You're going to consume the future performance and you have no idea what that future performance is going to be. You're making an intelligent guess, And I think it's just easier if it looks like what you expected. If the hedge fund manager comes from central casting, I just think it looks a lot easier. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we would notice it internally, too. There were certain people that maybe weren't the strongest investors, but sometimes some of our clients perceived them, you know, as they told a good story, you know.
0: Very interesting. I suppose just how how reflecting on that. One of the best ways, I think, of diversifying the industry is like conveying how satisfactory it is as a career, how much joy we get from it. I haven't got this question on the script. I'd love to ask you, what is it that you've enjoyed and you've loved about this industry?
1: Yeah. So I don't know anything about investment banking. I told you I didn't want to be it. I never did it. But when you think about finance, that's a very... How do you call it? You have to drop everything. To me, like I have friends who are lawyers and they're litigators. You know, when a trial's going on, you have to drop everything. Asset management, your record's by and large built over a long period of time. And it's about making better than average decisions over a long period of time, over lots and lots of decisions. And, you know, there are few times it's really time sensitive, occasionally you get a big market move or something will happen that's super time sensitive. But a lot of it's more about analyzing data, asking the right questions, putting things together in a better way. I think it's a career that I'll be candid, particularly for women who want to have families. It's a career that you could conceivably take an hour or two out in the middle of the day and work in the evening. You still have to work hard, don't get me wrong, but I think it's a more friendly career in finance than in a lot of other places. And I wish that message could get out because I think women are very good at considering things and analyzing things. And I just wish there were more women portfolio managers.
0: That's interesting. So I think it's interesting. Yes, it's possible to take an hour or two out. You shouldn't be day trading or or making these kind of short-term decisions. But is it as easy to take a year out? Especially if you're a portfolio manager. So I think it's one of those things, maybe in medicine, you could drop everything and re-enter a practice. That's true it's hard with the track record.
1: It's very hard with the track record. Yeah. And and unfortunately, you have the career and the biology that doesn't fit together very well, because times a lot of people want to start families today are the times that you're sort of setting yourself up for your future career trajectory. And they all kind of compiling down together at the same time. And, you know, in your late 20s and early 30s. And I think that's a real issue.
0: Moving to board roles, you have many, and you're still engaged in a a huge number of boards. Love to know what you bring to a board role, what you think makes a good board member, investment committee member, or chair, because you have a
1: wide, wide range. So I'm on four corporate boards, three public, one private. I think the thing that helps in the board is that a CEO, I sat in that general manager seat. And being a general manager is very much about making trade-offs. One of my former heads of portfolio management, very smart guy who built a very big firm and came to us in his retirement, said, Jane, if a decision is simple, then there's no decision. (laughs) You know, it's all, you know, it's where they're close and either decision could be good or bad. That's the ones that you struggle over. And I think that experience of risk balancing and thinking about the ups and downs and realizing you're not going to get them all right. I was with, I had the opportunity to be with one of the, top CEOs on Wall Street earlier this week. And he told about 30 or 40 of us directors. It was a director's education thing in general. And we were just talking about how he managed his board. And he said, very interestingly, if I'm not making about 20% wrong decisions, I'm not taking enough risk. And I think that's a very interesting attitude. So I think in terms of being a corporate board member, I think that's where... And then the other big skill I bring for a lot of this is having built a firm where For most of our history, we, the majority of the partners were women or underrepresented minorities, people of color. I've had a lot of experience in building very cohesive, very loyal teams that include everybody. And I think a lot of people talk the talk, but not many people have actually walked that walk. And I'm one of the few that have done that. On the investment committees, I'm about to join my fourth. So as you say, I've got probably too many boards. But the thing that's interesting with the investment committees is all three of them run very, very differently. One has a very fundamental value focus, one's very scientific, looks we'll at the data very heavily. And what I enjoy is seeing the different ways people invest and being able to ask the question. It's not about approving or not approving what the chief investment wants to, wants to do. It's there to say, have you looked in every corner? Because you know as well as I do, this business you make a lot of mistakes everybody even the best investors make a lot of mistakes and it matters that you stress test it internally as much as you can beforehand because the market's going to tell you whether you're right or wrong and we always found in interviewing and hiring managers for our fund of hedge funds what scared us the most is when there was a really strong corporate culture and a corporate norm to the way to behave because we always wondered well how much room is there for the out of the box thinking and we've all been humbled at times in in the markets and you know, that's just the way it goes. And so you want to minimize the number of times that happens. It's interesting.
0: So culture can be a, a strength, but can also be potentially a weakness if it distorts yeah. different voices and cognitive diversity there.
1: Exactly. And reinforcing what you already believe and you know, becoming kind of, I use the phrase, a Greek chorus is not a healthy investment environment.
0: That's really interesting because what I've perceived on investment committees is there's a lot of groupthink, not only on investment committees, but actually more among within an industry. Say yes. among consultants or within a cabal of consultants. How have you learned to break that group think or voice your opinion without concern for, well, just to voice your opinion and make it known and actually govern? Within that I think setting?
1: I've had several very big experiences where I've been an outsider. You know, I became a very, very competitive division one athlete, but I didn't go to a traditional division one track powerhouse. So, you know, I came to track and field late. I was still growing when I went to college, university, grew with the boys. And so I was used to being an outsider. You know, I didn't go to UCLA. I didn't go to Texas. I didn't go to one of the big powerhouses, Alabama. So I was always an outsider there. When I did my graduate work in finance, I was the first woman, my advisor, I was the first female PhD student he had. And. I was the first woman in the department at tech, you know, and so I was always an outsider. And so I think being an outsider has made it easier for me to say, I know I don't fit in the group, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask the question. And I've been able to, I think, be a little more assertive that way. But I would also stress, and I've learned it over times, is that you have to find a right way to ask the question. And so, you know, what I've learned is what I try to do very hard is ask the question, but then accept the result. And sometimes I've had people call me afterwards, both either investment committee or corporate board experiences and say, you know, I thought spent the last week thinking more about your question. I might be changing my answer. And that's music to my ears because I said something that really provoked them to rethink things. Well, that is the ultimate introspective
0: skill, I suppose, to change one's mind And I've been in a similar situation to you, and I I kind of liken it almost to like a reverse imposter syndrome. I almost call it the imposter imperative. (laughs) That's a great name because I mean, imposter has a negative connotation, but you know, when you are that different voice, you must speak up because otherwise, governance will not happen as it should. And I'm afraid I see a lot of governance issues. We've all seen them in some of the great corporate failures in recent years, even in our industry more than any. And we've seen perhaps governance not asking the questions and not interrogating and not picking over minutiae in financial statements and business models.
1: No, I think it's really good, but there's a lot of pressure to get along and go along. And, you know, I think both you and I, I'm probably a little more known for it than you, but both of us don't have very big mute buttons. You know, we feel it's important to speak up and say that. And I think it's more important. I'd rather say my piece gently and move on than to just go with the flow.
0: Do you think some of it comes from a lack of practice around conflict and that we need to be able to practice conflict that is not taken personally, is idea based, and that maybe we should practice conflict in lower stakes situations so we don't have to deal with the conflict discomfort in high stakes situations?
1: So, one of the things I've always struggled with, what you raise is a fascinating question. One of the things I've always struggled with is that when we founded Pamco, there was a very major Wall Street firm, one of the top brand names that offered to open an office for us and we would be part of their asset management group. And so we really thought about that. Do we want to go on our own or go with them? And, you know, I've gone back and forth whether we made the right call to go on our own. There's always been pitfalls and, you know, from one side to the other. And, but one of the advantages I think I have is that I was raised, as I said, via the academic route where speaking out is a little more tolerated. And I never had, I mean, yes, I did work at JP Morgan Asset Management, but not for a very long time. And so I never had those five to 10 years in a very large corporate firm. And so I think I never dropped that perspective from the academy of just saying, you know, saying it nicely, but raising the questions and raising the issues. But I think that's what's so important. And I think, as I said, when we evaluated firms, you could just tell firms where, you would go in and meet. That's why I meeting with the managers in person is just so important because you get to read what happens around the room. And when, you know, that they're talking with you, if they're always looking over to see if what they're saying meets approval or things, sort other of things, you're just like, how much independence is there internally? And, you know, we would have big disagreements. And sometimes we'd still go forward with an investment ID, even though we all didn't agree. We agreed to disagree but it helped us clarify. And a lot of times we negotiated agreements where, okay, but if you're wrong, what is the exit plan? You know, I can tell you when we thought about every time we hired a manager, particularly through time, we learned that you had to have an exit plan. You had to have effectively at what point you were going to reassess it. And it wasn't formulaic. It was customized to each manager, what made most sense to reassess when the manager Was doing something, and I think the ones that we had big disagreements about, we came up with much better criteria for where we wanted to reassess, and we managed the situation better if it worked or it didn't work. It was just we'd put more thought into it. We'd had good, robust discussions.
0: I've heard someone reference the I think it's the Intel method of disagreeing but committing. Yes. So even if you disagree on on a decision, but you ultimately know it's going to go one way, the importance is then to commit to that decision so that it doesn't essentially have to be owned by the one person if it goes wrong. I think otherwise there's no support as a
1: firm behind it. Exactly, exactly. And one of the other things that I structured is our compensation model at Pancro was very tied into basically the same bonus pool for the senior people. And so that caused a tremendous amount of collaboration. And what that was really good about was when people criticized, they knew it was because you really thought that this, it wasn't like trying to take credit. You really thought that this was the wrong decision. For the whole firm as opposed to, I want to score brownie points.
0: Let's go back to some personal reflections now. I mean, we've certainly been already kind of dipping in there, but looking back at any particular setbacks or challenges across the course of the career that you can share, some lessons learned there with those of us listening, anything in particular that comes up that you, was a real turning point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've occasionally been beat up in the press, which is not a lot of fun. As I said, one of the nice things about... Or, at least what I enjoyed is I could be myself because there wasn't a model I had to fit into. I was one of the few senior women in the industry, you know, head of a firm running a lot of money. So there really wasn't a model you had to fit in. But then, on the other hand, people weren't always prepared or would look at it differently. I think, you know, as I said one, of my biggest regret probably is I would have probably done a better job. I think we did a good job managing. I'm very proud of our performance record, and we helped a lot of particularly pension plans, improve their performance. I think the thing that I would have benefited from is spending a few more years in a big firm just to see how management worked more. You know, I sort of had to learn. When we founded PAMCO, for the first two years, there was no CEO. It was the four founding partners and we'd get together in a room and decide. And then it got to sort of silliness. I think this is the downside of all having PhDs. Got into the silliness that maybe we were meeting seven or eight times a day to make decisions. And so it's just like, look, we got to figure out how to delegate powder. So that was interesting. But I do think there's some other things that our naivete brought. We all questioned, like, we're all working for the same firm, bottom line. We should basically be paid all off the same P&L. You know, we're all going to contribute. And we should segregate management from compensation. That was a very big thing with us. We tried to do our performance reviews off cycle compared to the comp decisions because it was really about, we just all want to get better at what we want to do. And I think, you know, several of us came from sporting backgrounds. And I think when you coach something, you just want to get better. And it's kind of funny when you're in sports, you learn very quickly in most sports that if the coach isn't yelling at you. You're very depressed because it means the coach doesn't care. The coaches tend to yell at the good people, you know, they want to get them better and better and better. And so I think that was also very helpful to us is that, We hired people who understood that when we were making suggestions and challenging and stuff, it was because we really valued what they thought and we really wanted to make our whole firm better.
0: That's so interesting. And then building on that coaching team, did you have a coach, an executive coach, a business coach? Because that's something I think that we actually, many of us miss.
1: Yeah. So what I did is I, I realized I didn't know a lot about running businesses and so I had Particularly two people, and then later a third who I basically there were older senior people who had built businesses. One of them had been the former head of corporate finance of Robertson Stevens. Another one of them had built a big roll-up, but was interested in asset management. And then the other one was next McKinsey consultant who had done some LBOs, and they all just helped me a lot. And they were all great about advising me because. What they realized, I used to tell them as I'd talk to them about things, and I'd say, you understand that I probably only take your advice 10 to 20% of the time. But 50%, 60% of the time, you totally make me rethink the issue and discussing it with you. And I think that's one of the things that's important for people who are mentors and coaches to understand is the role is not to tell somebody what to do. The role is to get them to really think about it and consider it because they're in more possession of factual information than you are. And what you want to do is you want to get them to really rethink their decisions. And I do that a lot with like clients. Clients would ask me questions about other things and even about hedge funds. And it's not that I'm trying to convince you. I just want to ask you questions to get you rethink. Why are you doing this? So interesting, because often I find with executive coaches, the answer
0: is inside me. And they're the ones who are forcing me to see that it's inside me. And I suppose it takes a little bit of the pressure off to have all the answers all the time. If what you're really just ensuring that a decision is made with all the right factors.
1: And to consider perspectives that you hadn't seen
0: before. Right. And especially in this uncertain time when prediction is essentially impossible. It always has been, but we're always asked to make predictions. And Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, key people, any key people throughout the course of your career that maybe changed the trajectory or maybe
1: really made an impact? I got very, very fortunate with my three, what I would call, bosses, effectively. My undergraduate advisor, who ended up taking a very strong interest, volunteering to advise me because I was interested in some really technical issues in econometrics. But he was the one who got me into asset management. You know, I'd stereotyped it as investment banking. That's what I knew. That's what most of the people from my university went and tried to do out of school. My boss at J.P. Morgan, who realized that I'd have a hopefully a long career, which I did in asset management, but I had a short-term competitive opportunity in sports and that's time dependent. And so encouraged me to do that. And that was great because actually after getting training, going and working for that consulting firm, I got to like put it into practice on my own. And, you know, it's one thing to sit there as a lieutenant. It's the next thing when the buck stops with you. And so I got that experience very early. And then frankly, some of the best advice I've ever received it was from the chair of my dissertation committee, who, even though he was a very prominent academic, actually gave me really good life advice. And one, I, I tried to repeat it a lot when I taught and to other people that I've said, and one of his big points, which I think is really important, is make sure you keep learning all the way through your 20s. Most people stop too early on the learning, work really hard in your 30s and then reap the benefits in your 40s. And you know, he's off by a few years, but he was really right. And I just think you know, being curious and continuing to learn and is really important.
0: Well, Jane, it's been wonderful to weave together the different strands of your career so far from the academic life, which clearly has lessons for all of us in terms of its openness to challenge, as well as some of the wisdom that comes from that to the asset management industry and its ups and downs and learning to ride with that, as well as to the importance of continuing to have a voice, even as an outsider on a board and on a, continuing to use that voice. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to host you in person, to have you here. Thank you for coming and for sharing your insights with us.
1: Well, thank you. And I just really appreciate what you're doing, getting these stories out. It's incredible the work you've done.
0: I'm Ethan Devitt. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring investors on their personal journeys, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.